Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and psychological well-being and promote community. And I say promote community because I believe that human beings are basically friendly tribal animals. We like to hang out together. And when we know one another by name or at least by face, we tend to be cooperative and collaborative. Look what we do in the world, whether we go bowling together or fishing together or reading books together or go to concerts together or eat in restaurants all over the world together, on and on and on. You can name the things that we human beings like to do together, and we do so gently and lovingly for the most part. However, we must also be aware of the fact that a very small percentage of us are in a whole different category of being. They are avaricious, greedy predators, and they would have us be subjects rather than citizens. Remember, it's only a couple of hundred years ago that we broke that chain that was going on for almost 2,000 years, where kings led every country in the world. We broke through and we became citizens. What does it mean? We each got a vote. That's a democracy. What else does it mean? We called ourselves a republic, which means no person is above the law. We are an experiment in a democratic republic, but an experiment we are. And if we want to hold on to this experiment, we need to be involved. We need to be mindful. And in the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today, it is my privilege to have with us a noted veteran, San Francisco-based journalist, Don Layton, who's the author of many books, including The Harvard Psychedelic Club, published by HarperCollins in 2010, and more recently, Changing Our Minds, Psychedelic Sacraments and the New Psychotherapy. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Don. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be with you here today. Don, I'd like to start out by talking, or having you talk, really, I'll join in, about Aldous Huxley. I want you to tell us some of what you know about Huxley's experiments, but I want you to particularly emphasize what you can share with us about his taking LSD at the very end of his life. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I wrote a book uh, before, uh, right after, actually, right after Harvard Psychedelic Club called Distilled Spirits, and one of the main characters in that was Aldous Huxley. Uh, another character was a Irish Anglo mystic philosopher named Gerald Hurd, who unfortunately most people haven't heard of, but he was very influential in laying the groundwork for what became the spiritual counterculture of the 60s, along with Huxley. And the, the third person in that art, that uh, that trio was Bill Wilson, the co-founder of AA, who was also involved in psychedelic research. And But with Huxley, uh, it was really Gerald Hurd who got Huxley originally interested in uh, spirituality, religion, philosophy. Early in his career, Huxley was a fairly, uh, you know, skeptical, even boarding on cynical character in some of his, his early work as a essayist and journalist. And it was really heard that got him interested in, in, in spirituality. Um, and, uh, and then that led into Huxley's first experiments with psychedelic drugs, which happened in, in 1953. Actually, it's sort of funny. It was I was in utero at the time. My mother was in the spring of 1953. <laughs> I was uh, in utero, uh, waiting to be born. And Huxley had his first uh, his first mescaline experience in Los Angeles with uh, an early researcher named Humphrey Osmond. And uh, you know, Huxley, like many people, had written about and thought about mystical experiences, but he'd never actually had one. So he had a very uh, powerful experience uh, on mescaline in Los Angeles in 53 and wrote about it in a famous book called The Doors of Perception, which was published the, the next year, which was influential in a whole lot of ways. Uh, you can really trace a lot of the psychedelic counterculture of the 60s really back to, to Huxley's work. 
And, um, you know, Huxley was uh, also, but Huxley was a little cautious about psychedelics. I mean, he, for instance, he didn't want to talk about them on television because he thought like, you know, the common man and woman was not, were not really ready for that. And they were kind of trying to influence kind of the thought leaders in, in the early years of what we now call the psychedelic renaissance. Um, so that's interesting to note now that everybody and their brother is, you know, a psychedelic therapist or a psychedelic expert and everybody's talking about it. Uh, often they don't know too much about it, but there are, <laughs> there are a lot of thought leaders out there, uh, instant thought leaders. But anyway, so Huxley uh, experimented with LSD and other psychedelic drugs quite a bit in the 1950s. And then um, towards the end of his life, he was suffering from cancer and he was on his deathbed. And, uh, you know, his last novel, Island, he has a scene in there where uh, shamans, therapists, spiritual teachers work with people who are dying and uh, with with, uh, with a psychedelic drug he called Soma. Um, and in his actual life, he was on his deathbed in Los Angeles. It happened to be the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. And Huxley wrote on a little piece of paper, which I actually have seen this piece of paper at the, the Huxley archive at UCLA. They have this. Uh, he scrawled out 100 uh, uh, micrograms intravenously, asking for a shot of LSD at the end. And uh, his, his wife uh, at the time, Laura Huxley, convinced the doctors after some discussion to let him do this. And uh, he went out uh, on a uh, on an acid trip with a hundred micro microgram uh, dose. So he definitely saw the value of uh, psychedelics, including at end of life, at the very end of life. In, in in his case, do we have any commentary from him while he was under the influence of the LSD as he was passing? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I, I I'm I've heard to, I've heard rumors. I'm trying to remember. You know, um, it's been a while since I since I did the re research and reporting on this. I mean, I, I think Laura Huxley wrote about it. Yes, uh, I'm not sure if he actually did though say anything like last words or something. I'm not sure. The, the rumor that I heard was that his last words were, "I wish people would be kinder to one another." Oh, really? That's interesting. I hadn't which, heard that. I hadn't heard that. Yes, which is interesting to me because there's a famous quote that, that, uh, from Cicero that has always been very attractive to me, where he says, if you meet a stranger on the road, be kind to them, for they're going through what you're going through as well. Mm. And it felt like I really, I really resonated to that as a very deep, he had a very deep connection to his fellow person, which is something that came to me on my first LSD trip, which was a very, very deep connection to fellow beings on the planet. So I was curious whether, what, you know, what Huxley might have said. But you also have written about not just taking LSD or a psychedelic at the very moment of death, but you, you've written about taking LSD during end-of-life transition times, and I'd like you to elaborate on that, please. Sure. Well, in my book, uh, Changing Our Minds, Psychedelic Sacraments and the New Psychotherapy, there is a chapter, uh, the chapter is titled Dying with Consciousness, and it's uh, largely uh, based on interviews with both researchers and research subjects uh, at Johns Hopkins uh, Medical Center in Baltimore and NYU in New York, where they were using not LSD, but psilocybin, uh, synthesized version of the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, uh, to help people. These are not necessarily people on their deathbed. Actually, they weren't. They weren't looking for that. Those are, these were people who had a, a cancer diagnosis. Yes. They were facing death. Uh, in some cases, they had, you know, re had a remission and were recovering. But then what often happens with people after they get through the physical battle with cancer, then a lot of the uh, emotional, uh, psychological, um, existential questions come up. Suddenly, they're, what are they going to do with the rest of their life and the rest of the time that they have? And uh, some people, uh, you know, fall into a fairly deep depression 
uh, often, you know, when they first get the diagnosis and then even if they recover afterwards. So this this uh, research uh, was looking at. Uh, oh, excuse me. Let, let me interrupt there. Yeah. Did you did you say. When they first get the diagnosis and even after they recover, does that mean you're differentiating between people who are terminal and people who actually recover and are cancer survivors? Uh, in the study, there were both kinds of people. There, okay. There were, they, 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 weren't, they weren't people who were actually like on their deathbed and very sick, but they were people who had gotten a life-threatening diagnosis. Yes. Some were still struggling with it and being treated. Others had, uh, you know, survived that or were in remission. So they were both. Both. They, they, what they were studying is the uh, effect that the psilocybin had on depression among these. For both groups. For both groups. Okay, yeah. so please go on and tell us what you what you found out. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So in the book, I I interview several of the research subjects, um, uh, and one of the things that they would say is that the the psilocybin, in some ways, uh, was a kind of a dress rehearsal for death. And this can be explained. I mean, it's often said the psychedelics can lead to kind of ego dissolution or even, you know, kind of a experiencing a loss of your body or expanding I, beyond your body. Yes, I've and, had that experience. Don. Yeah, I, I have. I have, too. Uh, as a matter of fact, I do a treatment. You know, I've suffered from depression myself and I do a treatment with ketamine. And uh, ketamine, which is not exactly a psychedelic, it's a it's a disassociative kind of anesthesia, but it can have profound psychedelic properties. And so I've experienced that too on, on ketamine and on other psychedelics, uh, both in my life and in my research for the book. Um, but anyway, so, um, you know, a lot of these, just as uh, a, just as a side note, yeah. I, I'd like you to go on with your research about the, that you uh, went into with these people who are in end of life transitions, but let's remember to come back to your own experience with ketamine and various other psychedelics sure. for your personal depression, okay? Sure, sure. Great. So, I mean, this is not my research. I'm a journalist, so I'm just reporting. That's on what the, I meant. Well, I, yeah, I, 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 I consider a journalist of your magnitude to be a research journalist in that <laughs> you're researching what other researchers are doing. Right. Yeah. I was interviewing the, the researchers, right. uh, you know, including uh, Bill Richards uh, and Rowan Griffiths at, at, uh, at uh, Hopkins and Anthony Bosis at NYU. They've done a lot of this work. Yes. And a woman, Mary Cosimano at, at Johns Hopkins. She's probably led more sessions than anyone. Um, and anyway, so, yeah, in, in some ways, uh, a, a psychedelic experience can be a sort of a rehearsal for death. It can feel like you're dying. Um, and with the right support, uh, and in the right conditions that can feel okay. Right. You can kind of learn to almost, like I said, have a kind of a dress rehearsal for that. When you really lose a sense of your body, when your ego dissolves, you might have a sense of oneness with everything. Uh, it can also be a very terrifying experience. You can experience uh, a void, and it can be a kind of an emptiness that can be very troubling and frightening. So these are not always blissful experiences. They're often very powerful experiences. I can um, I can remember well in in one of my very early experiences when I felt like I was dying, but I had read, of course, in advance about ego death. This we're going back 60 years now, 50, 60 years. But at that moment, the thought came into my mind, suppose there was some kind of an adulterant in what I took. I mean, I really didn't get it from the laboratory. I got it from, you know, somebody else that I knew That's that was supposedly, a problem, yeah. right? And I'm thinking to myself, God, maybe I'm really dying. This is an ego death. And then I said, well, too late now. I just got to let it go. Well, <laughs> later on, if you want, I'll tell you about a couple of recent experiences I've had with ketamine, which are kind of interesting in that regard. But I'd love to hear it. Any, anyway, to, just to finish up with the, the work yeah. that's being done at, at Hopkins and, and NYU. Um, so, uh, yeah, so some, so uh, w one of the research subjects I interview and, and, and tell the story at length in the book is a guy, Richard Cohen, who was a, uh, a scientist, nothing to do with psychedelics at, at Johns Hopkins, who had a cancer diagnosis. This is after his, going through his daughter dying of cancer. So he had some very powerful experiences uh, with, with his, his late daughter, which really were kind of beautiful and helped him through his own cancer. Like she was helping him through his cancer. 
I mean, he tells a story where he picked, you know, in the middle of the of the psilocybin session, there was a little Buddha statue, and he he picked it up, and the Buddha was not Buddha; it was his daughter, his his, his daughter who the young daughter who died, Tanya, and he touched the Buddha, and the Buddha leaned into and rubbed against his finger, and it was like his daughter; it was his daughter who was telling him it's going to be okay, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you hear some beautiful stories like that, you know. Um, uh, Tell another. And, and well, another another one was a woman who you know was kind of a very uh, you know kind of a dynamic type A kind of ambitious successful woman professional woman who uh, you know put all those resources into fighting the cancer and beating the cancer right so she's she was in remission and she had a lot of help from her net, her her support network and her community and her family but then once she was like free with the cancer suddenly all that support disappeared. And she was left with these questions of, oh, wow, what just happened? I almost died. I'm going to die. And 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 so that's just an example of how often it's not so much the cancer you're dealing with. It's the emotional and psychological and existential ramifications of going through that experience. And the psilocybin really helped her to to, to deal with that and process that and, and find a way through that uh yeah, depression. And a lot of the people in both the studies with depression, with uh, life-threatened uh, persons, and also other people with depression, these are often people with very serious depression, you know, treatment-resistant depression. People who have tried antidepressants, you know, traditional antidepressants, which do work for some people. Uh, so they're kind of the more serious cases. Um, I, I can tell you the... Let me just Don, Don yeah. when you were researching the researchers both yeah. at Hopkins and uh, at NYU. Did you find that their subjects that were selected for the research tended towards more severe depression? Yes. Um, they, they, were used- often, they often were looking for people with treatment-resistant depression. Okay. And okay. those would be people who maybe had tried, uh, not not always, but often looking for people. It depends on the study. There are different studies are slightly different. Right. The format at NYU and Hopkins and others. I mean, there are a lot of other other studies of psychedelic therapy with other people with depression. Okay. So, but this particular group was was interesting in that they were facing. The, I just wanted to there's the, the, some statistics about the findings from this. So at the the team at NYU found that 83 percent of the cancer patients treated with psilocybin had a significant reduction in depression symptoms seven weeks after they received a single dose. Uh, and that was compared to 14% who got a placebo, uh, you know, a, a, a sugar pill, a control group. So, so the, the, difference was, the difference was 83% versus 14%. Dramatic. Which is very significant at NYU. And then at Hopkins, it was 92% uh, versus 32%. So in both cases... You know, the people, because these are double blind placebo controlled studies. Yes. In a way, it's kind of a joke with psychedelics because everybody knows who gets the placebo and who gets the the real thing. But, you know, that's these are sort of the hoops you have to jump through to get the FDA to reschedule these drugs, which is the goal of all this research. Of course. Um, But anyway, it, it is it is it's not totally ludicrous, the double blind, because, no, the people who got the placebo got all the other support. They got all the therapy. They got all the attention. They got all the support. And the um, other thing is, if they if the placebo group were totally naive subjects, as differentiated from people who have taken a psychedelic once, yeah, a totally naive subject really doesn't know what to expect. And so when nothing particular happens, they really don't know for sure whether that is what's supposed to happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, no, in other true. words, for that's the rest for, for, for the rest of us, once we've taken it once, we know immediately if we've taken it or not. Right. right but right. Be, be, but before you have, you don't know what to expect. So there's a little something there that makes it a little tiny bit less silly. But I know what you mean. It's, you know. Yeah, but, it, but also, if you've never had a psychedelic experience and you have one, that's often the time when it's the most powerful and revelatory. So yeah, that you, group knows that. The experimental group knows immediately which group they're in, for sure. Yeah, the, the researchers are also not supposed to know, you know, which one got. Which, well, that's right? the that's double, double blind, that's and that's why blind. it's so important. And, of and, course. and there are, I, you know, I've talked to a lot of these researchers, and some of them actually, there, there are times when they've been fooled, but it's very, very rarely. Yeah, that, yeah. You know. By the way, as a sidebar for listeners, 
for those of you who are not acquainted, what a double-blind means is the person who is administering the material, whether it's a placebo or the real medicine, does not know what it is they're handing over. And the reason that's done is that we found out years ago that when the administrator knows what it is that they're handing over, it has an impact on the subject. Right. So we so we remove that that potential impact, and they don't know what they're giving. Uh, thank you for allowing me to explain that. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was basically it, yeah with with those two studies. Those were those were the the, the the preliminary you know findings. And I think it was phase yeah. two of those. I've got studies. to ask you a question about that now. Yeah. Um, the way you're describing the studies, we've got a complex situation because. There's depression that the subjects brought to the study with them, and that's why they were selected. But we also know that there's a depression which comes a long time, often with anxiety, which comes to a person who has not suffered depression or anxiety when getting a terminal diagnosis. Yeah. Right? So yeah. we have, in a way, two different groups and the group that's being experimented on in the two studies you're talking about at Hopkins and NYU are people who brought their depression with them to getting a diagnosis, which, if anything, would exacerbate their depression and anxiety. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure if they all were suffering from depression before. I don't think that was a, in, in some studies, you know, that's been, a, I, I think there was a mixture of people. Yeah, then I'd want to drill down and yeah. know the differential effect. Did the medicine have a different effect on the treatment-resistant depression group than it did on your normal but getting depressed from getting a a terminal diagnosis right. group. Yeah. That's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to it. Yeah. You have to probably check with the researchers them, themselves. I think I'll um, send an email to Roland on that and find out what he has to say. Yeah, I know. Because in some of the other studies with depression, they've, you know, sometimes they've looked for people that were psychedelically naive and never experienced this before. Other studies, that's not a requirement. Uh, uh, sometimes it would be treat like a lot of the studies with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and MDMA, which are going on. Uh, they're they're all, they're specifically looking for treatment resistant PTSD. Right. Suffers. So the the, the 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 there's so many different studies going on that the the, the ground rules vary a bit. But now, from in in doing this these studies of the studies, as a journalist, was your takeaway? that the, quote, normal people or people or either group that took a psychedelic because of the depression, to what extent are they dealing with fear of death? Can you comment on that? Yeah, I, I think a lot of the people in the, the study of the life-threatened uh, patients were dealing with fear of death. But I think a lot of us... <laughs> quote, normal people or healthy people are also dealing with that when we start thinking about it. People don't really like to think about it. So I, I think, you know. People don't really like to think about what? Dying? Death? Dying. And, you know, and, and uh, a lot of people are afraid of it, don't want to think about it, don't want to face it. You know, Why? That, Why are people? Way, look at the way the culture deals with dying people. We put them aside in nursing homes. We warehouse them. We you know, we, we're, we're, we're not living with like we're not living with people like we used to who are experiencing death and dying. You know, I mean, it's, it's been kind of I, people are often isolated. What's and, the genesis of this fear of death, in your opinion, Don? Just, you know, it's it's wondering what happens, you know, uh, when you're gone. And, you know, it depends on what what kind of obviously what kind of religious or spiritual beliefs people have about an afterlife or if they don't. Um, you know, I think with the kind of the decline in religious belief and affiliation in terms of mainline churches, I think maybe a lot of people, I, I'm just guessing, I haven't done any you know, studies on this, but I'm thinking that maybe a lot more people maybe will have a, concerns and fears of death when they don't have, a, you know, kind of a theological explanation for what happens uh, when you die. I, I'm, I'm aware that you're just speculating, but you're, you're an educated man and, and done a lot of work in journalism, and, and your opinion is important to me, yeah. just your yeah. plain, ordinary opinion. Yeah. I, yeah. I have an opinion on it myself. I, I believe that the fear of death is something that has been created and fostered 
by religion as a way of controlling the people and getting them to live by their rules. It yeah. go, it, okay. Right? It goes something like, if you live by our rules, then in the afterlife, you're going to have a good time. But if you don't do what we tell you to do while you're alive, you're going to have a miserable time afterwards, and you may even go to what some religions call hell, and you'll be burning in fires for all of eternity. That's yeah. a pretty scary notion if you can get that into people's heads. No, yeah, so that- yeah, no. It, religion can oft, oft, often is used as an instrument of social control, and that's that's a way to do it. But on the other hand, I mean, it, it also might work for people, right? They might also they might believe the you know the. The, the scenario outlined, whatever the religion, whether it's, you know, heaven with, uh, with Christians or, you know, uh, reincarnation with Buddhists, whatever. It can, it can offer uh, comfort and, you know, support for people, too. Both things can be true. Yes. So coming back now. Anything else that you want to add in terms of end of life transition with psychedelics that you have come across? Well, I mean, in the study, the other thing that a lot of people, a lot of the, the, you know, the research subjects that I interviewed, they said it, it really gave them kind of an appreciation for the life they had left to live. It kind of made them more, uh, have a more of a feeling of gratitude and, and connection to life. And uh, so it was a real turning point in, 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 in their lives. So, um, you know, there was mostly very positive you know, some people had some terrifying experiences, but in the end, with the support of a, a therapist and spiritual guide, they worked through that and came out, uh, you know, happier and ready to really experience the time they had left, even if yes. that was a little bit of time. And that that was that was that was striking. That was, I that bet was it was because the most terrifying experiences, if you have a proper guide, are the best experiences because when you deep dig into the terror, you come out on the other side and you've conquered it and you no longer have to fear that demon. So there's a wonderful feeling of confidence and a feeling of expansion that comes from that. But in the early stage of it, when the terror hits, it is indeed terrifying. But that's a caveat to people when when taking large doses of these medicines to have a professional guide with you and not be just sort of experimenting around if you think if there are some demons that you might be facing. Right. And that's and that's the that's really the what's different I think about this so-called psychedelic renaissance that we're in right now. I mean, people, of course people are taking psychedelic drugs in all kinds of ways. You know, people are partying, people are doing whatever, but what I'm writing about in my my book and in in my work are people that are really looking at this with uh, like there's there's preparation you know there's a lot of preparation before talking with a therapist or a guide beforehand there's intention what are you trying to accomplish you're you're looking you're starting with depression you're struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder you're struggling with alcoholism whatever it is there's intention uh and then there is integration yeah uh taking whatever insights you have uh, during the trip and integrating them into their lives and finding ways to live a better life, to be a more compassionate person, for instance. I mean, I love what Houston Smith, you know, said about uh, psychedelic experimentation. He said, it's, it's not about altered states as much about as it is about altered traits, altered states of consciousness versus altered traits of behavior. You know, do you come out of this, uh, a happier, more compassionate, more well-adjusted person. And, you know, with, with help, that's possible. And that's, you know, very different than someone, you know, having a bad trip, you know, at a party and having people laughing at them or, you know, no support at all. So that that's that's really what differentiates this new wave, at least the wave I'm writing about in my work, from, you know, some of the more wilder experimentation that were going on in the 19, you know, 60s and 70s. And it still happens today, of course, with people. Well, it's it's an interesting side note, but it's not so much on the side, which is we have medicines which serve both as potentially extremely important medicines, but those very same substances can be used recreationally. And that's just something that we have to live with and we have to deal with. And that's why th- we're doing these programs and why you're doing your research and why I'm doing mine, because we want to get the public as educated as possible. 
and 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 hopefully so this renaissance will not just to burn out but it'll be a real a real culture changer and when when you come away from your research um at again at Hopkins NYU and the other places you've gone have you considered what questions would be beneficial for people to be asking themselves as they're going into an end of what seems like an end of life transition? Hmm. What kind of questions? Yeah. Like what kind of questions should well, like you? What, I mean, I, I, you know, uh, what, what, if there's fear, what is the fear of? Uh-huh. You know, um, I mean, I, I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a therapist or a spiritual guide myself, but no, uh, but but things but, pop but, into you know, your I, head. I, I would say that, yeah, looking at that fear and facing that fear and 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 not running away from it. I mean, that like we said before, sometimes a quote, so-called bad trip with support can be the best trip. And one of the things that they advise people of, if let's say you you know have a vision or a hallucination of a of a monster coming at you of some sort don't run away from it face it with curiosity what are you trying to teach me what are you trying to tell me so you know looking at your fears in that way i think can be very constructive for for, for people whether they're dying or not yeah your your views are very important sir because as a as a journalist with the good reputation you have what you do is report and you report as unbiased a way as possible, which means you're bringing us what you have seen, or in this case, you're bringing us information from these researchers. And I want to point out to you that the first thing you said when I asked you the question of, you know, what kind of questions should somebody ask, you zeroed in on fear. And it turns out that almost every, if not every therapist I've asked that same question to comes up with the same answer okay. that it, that that fear is the one most important th question to that we should be asking ourselves and we should be relating to and dealing with in order to feel better about ourselves as we transition well you know you you meant richard you mentioned you know as a journalist looking at this like objectively you know in in a sense there's thing is objective i'm very subjective in some ways but you know fair looking at it fairly in a fair balanced way and one of the things that i've noticed in this recent wave of media attention is there's kind of an irrational exuberance there's a lot of hype i think there's a bit too much hype in some of the coverage of of this new wave of research and experimentation, kind of downplaying the dangers and downplaying the the downside of this, which is there. So I think that's just worth noting. You know that it's interesting that the you know the war on drugs. There was all this demonizing of you know of of, of psychedelics and other drugs, often you know based on bogus studies. Uh, of of like for instance, you remember back in the sixties, like LSD was supposed to damage your chromosomes lead to birth defects, which was totally false, you know. Oh, I so remember that, the story. I, I think there's a danger in us forgetting that these these drugs are not something to take lightly, that they can they can be very that can produce some very unwanted and uh distressful psychological and existential questions that can are not always answered and uh yeah, they're not for everyone. This kind of treatment is not for everyone. And I think what's happening now is there's been so much positive coverage. Uh, in a way, too, in my book, I actually have quite a few cautionary tales. You know, uh, there are a lot of great people doing this work, and there are a lot of charlatans and con artists doing this work, too, both in this and especially in both the therapy side and in the, the, the spiritual and the religious side. So I think people just need to go into this with their eyes wide open and be very cautious. That's one thing I always like to say in interviews. Because uh, I think I think Michael, pa I mean, Michael Pollan's book, uh, which came out about a year after mine and had a very similar title, you know, I, I think, you know, Michael's a, gr a good journalist, but I, I don't think he presented enough cautionary tales. Uh, and I think people are going into this in kind of a naive way. And I, I, I worry about that. You know, a lot of people aren't, maybe aren't ready for these experiences or don't have the right support. It's very different to have a, you know, a, a two trained therapists at a major medical center dealing with you than, you know, 
tripping with your friends. And and you can't trip with your friends and have great. That's what we did in the 60s, right? People turned on their friends, right? Uh, For the most part, people had great experiences, revelatory experiences, wonderful experiences. But what people there, we all know people from that era, you probably do, that kind of never came back from a couple trips, right? They kind of burn out or got into other drugs. So I think that's just worth mentioning. I think it's more than worth mentioning. Whenever I interview, and I've done, I don't know how many interviews you know, I've got a couple of books out on psychedelic medicine. I always ask the scientists to report on negative effects, on unwanted effects, et cetera, because it's important. I know that the, the most, if not all professionals realize that people should be vetted before accepted as a patient for psychedelic treatment, because there are some people that were not simply not prepared and, and oughtn't to be uh, to accept for psychedelic treatment. And I can mention one right now, which is people that have uh, cardiovascular issues. They should they they need to be extremely careful or not take these medicines at all, especially with MDMA. Yeah, with MDMA because there's an increase in heart rate and blood pressure. But there's also an increase in heart rate and blood pressure for many people with psilocybin as well as uh, LSD. And uh, I was talking to a researcher at uh, University of California, San Francisco recently just on this very topic. And he said in a rather large group of subjects, there were increases in blood pressure and heart rate, but they were within what they considered to be acceptable enough parameters that they did not need to administer medicines to bring the blood pressure and the heart rate down. So that was very positive on the one hand, but also the the caveat, as you're pointing out, for everybody to know that this increase does come and there are some people who will not be able to tolerate this kind of increase or they may go into a tachycardia. Now, the exuberance you're talking about, uh, yes, we have it. Why? Because you know, I'm 83 years old, so I'm old enough to have been involved in what's called this war on drugs for over half a century. And I've had my career uh, overseen by a government that has not allowed research until very recently. Right. So finally, when some research is allowed, you bet I'm screaming, Yahoo, finally, yes. my God, I've lived to see it. Am I glad? Oh, what yeah. a wonderful oh, yeah. thing. But at the very same time, what you're saying is extremely important. It's not for everybody, or if it is for everybody, that we're gonna, we're, it's going to be many years from now how we figure out how it is for everybody. But right now, while we're doing pioneering research, caveat emptor, we've got to be very careful. Um, I want to go on to something else uh, with you now. Uh, we mentioned earlier uh, about your experiences with ketamine. Uh, used for your own personal um, uh, depression. And since you were generous enough to mention it openly, can I ask you to talk some more about that? Yeah. Um, So when I first started doing, uh, working on the reporting and the research for Changing Our Minds, which came out in 2017, so this is like around 2014, um, I wanted to, I hadn't experienced ayahuasca and I was going down to Brazil and some people told me, oh, you, if you're on uh, SSRIs, you shouldn't take ayahuasca or you should get off ayahuasca for like seven weeks. Other people said, well, it's not that serious. It's a, you know, there's a, something called the serotonin surge. Anyway, um, I had two or three weeks and I did get off um, the SSRIs I was on for my depression um, because I wanted to. I was I already had this trip planned to Brazil. Right. What SSRIs be- were you on? Uh, well, I've been on various ones over the years, uh, you know, Prozac, Wellbutrin, Zoloft, uh, uh the, yeah, the whole pharmacopoeia. Yeah. Yeah. Did any, uh, did any... No, I, I, I found antidepressants to be mildly helpful, but you know, not certainly not a cure. And, uh, they seem to be having, you know, I would basically what I would notice when I try to get off them, you know, titrating down, I would get worse. You know, I wasn't really feeling better on them. And so I was really ready to try something else. You know, uh, and, have, are you familiar with uh, the journalist Robert Whitaker's book, Anatomy of an Epidemic? No, I you want to read that book or listen to my interview with him many years okay. ago. What he describes is exactly what you just uh, reported that you experienced, namely people get try to get off these SSRIs and 
they go through a withdrawal, but they're fooled into thinking that their symptoms have returned and the discomfort that they're experiencing is from them themselves, whereas what's really going on is they're going through a withdrawal as their brain chemistry starts right. to regulate again after not ha- from not having to deal with the SSRIs. Yeah. And so he, he reports that what you have there is a self-fulfilling prophecy, so to speak, because once you get on them, the pharmacopoeia companies have an annuity because there's a high probability you're going to stay on them forever because getting off them is so darn hard. Right, right. Which really pissed me off. <laughs> I bet. It should piss everybody I, I off. Saw that, I just saw that. And so anyway, I was ready to get off them anyway, right? And so this this uh, reporting trip down to Brazil to do ayahuasca the first time sort of gave me the uh, impetus to do that. And and I did. You know, I titrated down and I was fine with it. And, um, you know, just even to back up a little bit more, I mean, I've written about my life is an open book because I've written a memoir about being an alcoholic uh, and a cocaine addict. Right. And going through rehab for all that. So, you know, for years I was, you know, a journalist, you know, a hard drinking, you know, sort of journalist like many of us back in the day. Right. High, highly functioning alcoholic and addict. Right. Uh, but still an addict and an alcoholic. So I came to see at some point I was basically treating my self-medicating for depression, right? Yeah, with alcohol yes. and cocaine. Yes. So I got off. <clears throat> I, I haven't had a drink or a line of Coke since 2006. So I, I, I'd already gone through all that, right? I'd gotten off of alcohol and cocaine as my medications. <laughs> and so this is like five or six years later, I'm trying the ayahuasca. And one of the things I was, I was, uh, my, one of my intentions going to the ayahuasca journey was what is this thing called depression? How is another way to look at this thing called depression? So we're, we're, this is all to get to the ketamine story, but I'm sort of backing up. The Take your of, time. Know. We're good. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, and the, the ayahuasca journey, it was, was helpful in me both looking at my depression and my addictive nature. Right. Um, so that was, well, that was helpful. Anyway, I got back and, uh, and you know, I didn't want to go back on to SSRIs or other antidepressants. And I was actually doing another story. I was interviewing a, a doctor on Maui who happened to be Ram Dass's doctor, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, 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 and he had been using ketamine, uh, injecting ketamine in some of his patients. He was just a general practitioner, kind of a holistic health, kind of Andy Weil kind of MD on Maui. But he was uh, very uh, infatuated with ketamine and how it can help people with depression. And so he asked me if I wanted to try it. And I and I said, OK, well, I, I thought about it a day. I went back to his office and had my first you know, ketamine uh, experience, which was uh, an IV injection, which is more intense than other you know, vehicles. I would uh, say so. <laughs> so I've I had, had I've very- had ket- I've had ketamine IV, IM and sublingual. And right. snort it, and it, the and sublingual nasal. is what I the sublingual is what I wound up doing as a regular kind of practice. But but uh, my first experience was you know with an IV injection, so you know it was very in, very in, in, intense and very wonderful, very frightening at first, but very wonderful. Um, total out of body experience, you know, blasting yes. and a bit like it reminded me a bit like later on in my reporting for the book, I tried five meo DMT, you know, the so called toad, you know, the buffa toad. Yes, of course. Uh, venom and it was a bit like that in terms of just this sudden you know catapulting yourself into this total other state of awareness and consciousness just like that um anyway so i i did a few ketamine sessions with him over the next six months and i was working on this other article in maui um and interviewing him for that and eventually i wound up working with a a guy uh who phil wolfson i don't know if you know phil wolfson he's i've really interviewed funny. i've interviewed him on my program Don. okay yeah so he's done a lot of work with ketamine he wrote a book about ketamine yes and so he he's an md so i i know him both as a journalist and kind of socially too you know he's, we have a lot of mutual friends yeah same so here anyway he prescribed uh, these the sublingual lozenges which yes. has sort of been my only kind of ongoing I would call it psychedelic practice uh, as an alternative treatment for depression. And um, so that's what I've been doing. And I've usually, and often I have very positive experiences, um, but I've had some, you know, some real terrifying and kind of dangerous experiences on it lately, which has actually caused me to kind of question 
whether it's something I want to keep doing. Um, well, uh, here's what I can tell you from my 60 years as a clinical psychologist. In addition to digging deep on the origin of the depression, the genesis, aerobic exercise is the most effective immediate cure. Mm -hmm. And so if one wanted to take a total approach, I would recommend aerobic exercise at least five days a week, working up to an hour a day, maybe starting with 10 minutes a day and adding a couple of minutes each week. So it's a gradual increase, which is very acceptable. Yeah. And then doing the dig deeping or the dig, the dig, the di the, the very deep, deep digging, digging. <laughs> deep diving uh, at the very same time, well, then you'd be covering the bases. But even if a person didn't have the time to do the, uh, the very deep digging, the aerobic exercise from everything I've learned and everything I've experienced is more effective than any medicine that anybody's come up with, including the psychedelics. Duke University did some of the, the best research on this some years ago. Uh, you might want to look into it, where they compared aerobic exercise, Zoloft, and Zoloft plus aerobic exercise. And they did a two-year follow-up on the same study. And what they found both times is that aerobic exercise alone was the most effective treatment. Now, one might think, well, aerobic exercise plus the medicine ought to be the best, but it's not. It turns out that the Zoloft decreased the effect of the aerobic exercise really? so, that, so that the group that did aerobics plus Zoloft did not come in first. The group that came in first was aerobics only. And Indiana University did the seminal research on aerobic effect on functioning maybe 40 years ago, and that piece of research has been totally neglected by everyone in the field, as best I can tell. But there was a wonderful piece of research where they hooked people up to all kinds of machines and had them do aerobic exercises, and then they evaluated the data. When I read that, Don, and I read it maybe at least 40 years, I would say 35, 40 years ago, I was so taken by that piece of data and that research that I went from being a couch potato, literally, and a bookworm, to an aerobic exercise zealot. And rarely have I ever gone a week since then where I didn't do an hour of aerobic exercise uh, five days a week. Because prior to that, while I was a couch potato and a bookworm, etc., I was having a nice life, but I could sense that I was dealing with an underlying depression because when I got up every morning, I got up in a not grateful and happy to face the day, but I got up grouchy and I got up in like a mood. And mm -hmm. when I started, to, as soon as I started that exercise program, I made sure to do it the first thing in the morning as soon as I woke up. And I'd go out 7.30 in the morning, started with 10 minutes, worked my way up to an hour. Actually, within a few years, I, I became a marathon runner which was really wonderful. That cleared out the depression forever. But as soon as I, I noticed immediately, Don, that I'd wake up with this mood, it felt like depression, I'd go out and do the exercise, I'd come back to the house, I was in love with the world and my wife and my kids and everything was good. And that was consistent, and that has been consistent to this day, 40 some odd years later. So I, that's, I can. That's, that's great. Yeah. Uh, so even in, one, would, would, would pickleball count <laughs> as, as aerobic exercise? Well, you know, aerobic exercise. <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's my new. That's my new addiction. I love pickleball. Pickleball. It, it, you know, it may or may not, but it gets your heart rate up. Technically, yeah. what aerobic exercise means is getting your heart rate up to between sixty and eighty percent of its maximum performance and staying in that range. Yeah. And so 60% is plenty. It's very doable. A 60% is what I call LSD, but it stands for long, slow distance. You just <laughs> get in that 60% groove for an hour and your depression and everything, at least from this subject and my patients over the years that I've been able to get 
to do this has been very successful. Now, like everything else, there is a caveat. The caveat is it can be very challenging to get a person who's depressed exercising because by the very definition of depression, they don't have the energy to all of a sudden want to embark on an exercise program. They look at you like, are you kidding me? I can barely get out of bed, let alone go out and do some of what you're telling me. Yeah, no, that that's an issue. I mean, I found music. I mean, I, I play guitar, I sing. That, 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 that's a great treatment for depression. Too. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, just, just remembering the things that bring you joy and going out and doing them, you know? That it, that sounds like real medicine to me. Yeah. I think we can underline that one. Remembering the things that bring us joy and going out and doing them. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, that is that is so cool, Don, because I, I have this thing about directions, which is you can tell a person who asks you where to cross the street in traffic, you can tell them 30 places where not to cross. Don't cross there. Don't cross there. Don't cross there. But they still don't know what the heck to do. But if you tell them once where to go safely, they know exactly what to do. Go there. You're safe. That's the end of the story. And what you're saying is look for things that do bring you joy and do them. Right. And it's, do it's, them. It's actually doing them. That's the trick. <laughs> it's, it's, it's simple, but it, like I say, if you're down, it's, it's hard to kind of drag your ass, you know. If, uh, if you're down and if you're clinically down, we know that. We know the stories uh, of, of very famous people who have taken the time to write about them, of course. Yeah. No, I've, uh, I've, the ketamine has been very effective for me. I, I, and, uh, you know, but it is, it is temporary. For me, it, it seems to last about a week, you know, the, the, effect, the effect. So. Of uh, one lozenge? Uh, I I do two to three, 100 milligram. Two or three lozenges, 100 milligrams. Yeah. That's good to know. And it lasts about a I, week. I have a, I've, I've tried four and it was, I had, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a so-called K-hole, right? You know about the K-hole. And, yes, and, of course. You know, I, with the ketamine, like I was, like we brought this up originally because we're talking about both the, you know, the revelatory and the terrifying aspect of all this. And what I often find with the ketamine, well, the way I do it is, you know, I, I mean, the first time I did it was with the doctor, you know, he, I'm a very good responder to ketamine. He says, everyone isn't. And I have my, my headsets, my playlist of music, which is, which uh, music that has a lot of meaning for me in various ways. Uh, eye shades, headphones. I usually do it first thing in the morning. I take the lozenges. It's about an hour and ten, hour and fifteen minutes. And often I, often it's very subtle, you know. But I tend to f what it's like the opposite of depression. I will see how things in my life fit together, and have meaning. It kind of, re I think, I think the ego dissolution uh, aspect of it allows me, at least, to see the things that I take for granted that do bring me joy, the people in my life, the things I'm doing and how they're all connected. And I can feel waves of gratitude. Uh, and that is kind of the opposite of depression, right? Feeling the, a connection to everything and how everything is fits together. And the memory of that and the experience of that, you know, lingers. Uh, it fades over days and weeks, you know, but it, but that, how, that's how it, to me, it seems to work. Right. And sometimes we're talking about death. I mean, sometimes on ketamine, I can feel like I'm dying. I'll even think I've died, but I, I have the music. I, the music reminds me that I'm on a ketamine trip and, I, and that's what I'm doing. Um, I can feel like I'm dying and be okay with it, <laughs> yes. which is a really interesting experience for someone who does have some fear of, you know, death and wonders about death to actually have that uh, equanimity around uh, an ego dissolution, a, a near death experience in a sense. But I've had uh, uh, just a few, about a month ago, I had, I was in that same spot and I kind of forgot that I was on ketamine. I think I'd knocked the headphones off. So I lost the music. Right. And I got confused and, thought that I was, had really died and did not feel good about it. And I was thinking like, well, I have to burst. I was in this kind of void, this kind of dark void, not a pleasant place. 
and I felt like I had to burst out of that into this next plane of existence or something. That's what I was thinking. And I threw myself off the bed, which could have been very dangerous. I could have hit my head. Yes. I could have hurt my back. And that's the only time I've ever done that, you know, of the, of the four or five years I've been. So that was a little warning sign to me. <laughs> that's why maybe you shouldn't do this on your own. You know, maybe you should have someone with you. Uh, it's always it's always been fine for me, but I, I think that's a real danger of doing this on your own, you know. It's also a real danger of doing it at height, and it argues for putting something soft on the floor when one does these <laughs> kind of experiments. But the part that intrigues me is that you're seeing how different things in your life fit together, and it's giving you a sense of gratitude. And so then the question for me as a therapist is, what kind of provisions do you put in place to bring that experience back and solidify it so that you can then use it on a day-to-day -day basis? Are you able to take notes? Can you use a recorder and speak into it? Is there something you can do to create reminders so that you will be able to integrate what you've learned into your daily life? Because you're learning the most important things that you can learn which are gratitude for yeah, being yeah. here, right? Gratitude. I do, for I do all those. I do all of those things. You I do. do. Yeah. And, and also, like I said, remembering what does give me joy and then going out and, and, and doing it or. Yes. I like friend, my, my wife can always, I usually do this, before she's still asleep. It's first thing in the morning, you know, and I don't tell her I'm going to go down and do my ketamine. Right. But she can always tell, you know, the, the hugs are a little longer when I get <laughs> When I get back, uh -huh. Uh -huh. or or I'll think, oh yeah, my friend Dick, who's in the nursing home with dementia, I haven't seen him in a month. I should call him, and then I'll just do it. You know, just just little things like that. You know, but when you're so wrapped up in your own story and your own drama, you know, you're you're when you're kind of an egomaniac like I tend to be. You know, a lot of journalists suffer from this. I think. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's just when you calm that, when, when, when you, when you, you know, dissolve that and, and remember these other things and just, you know, just being a nicer person, being a more compassionate person, checking in with friends you haven't, you know, heard from. I mean, when I think of somebody on a ketamine experience, I'll call them. I won't, I won't tell them. I, hey, I thought of you on, I was tripping and I, <laughs> but you know, it's, so to me, that's a, that's a sign of how this works in a very positive way. You know, how long do these 300 milligram lasange of ketamine experiences last for you from the time you take them to when it's over and you go hug your wife? Uh, well, the, my music playlist is an hour and 10 minutes. And that's how I know it's sort of safe to get up and walk around. And, you know, you're still a little wobbly, you know, like mm -hmm. you're kind of drugged. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. it's a drug. Right? <laughs> it's yes, a heavy it drug. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the whole experience is like about an hour and 15 minutes. The, the part where the psycho, the psychedelic kind of experience of it, when it when it happens, it doesn't always happen. Sometimes nothing happens. Same dose, same. That's what's that's what's a mystery about it. You know, it's like one time I had that very frightening or, or a very beautiful K hole experience, uh, total like a metaphysical experience. Um, other times it'll be nothing, but uh, the 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 peak of the experience only lasts maybe. 20 minutes or so, 30 mm -hmm, minutes. Mm -hmm, yeah. And then mm -hmm. it's kind of coming down and and processing it, remembering it, writing a few things down, you know. Don, have you experimented with microdosing with LSD? I experimented with it with mushrooms, not with LSD. Have um, you, are you familiar with Ayelet's book, Ayelet Waldman's book, A Really Good Day? Yeah, yeah. No, I I was on a panel with Ayelet and I and I interviewed her. I wrote a story about uh -huh. uh, not just about her, but about uh, microdosing. I, I know Jim Fadiman pretty well, and he's oh. he's helped he's helped popularize uh, microdosing. Oh yeah, he's a good friend. Uh, I, I, I'm I'm a little skeptical of microdosing, Richard. Um, I I think I have tried it with with mushrooms. It's different. You know, it, a, a true, a true microdose, as you know, I mean, you shouldn't really feel anything. It should be kind of subliminal. That's my understanding of it. Right? Sub, subsensate, just below the level of noticing it. Yeah. yeah. Once you notice it, it's in a different category. And that's too much. And you, th well, this it's, is the so-called Fadiman protocol, right? You, you well, should take it, a little less. Yeah. It's not necessarily too much. I mean, for myself, 
10 milligrams is a micro a micrograms rather is a is a a microdose but i've experimented with 11 12 13 14 15 right up to 20 and 25 one microgram at a time to see what the different effects are and they they are they're, they're different effects but even up to 20 or 25 they're not what you'd call psychedelic but they're different uh, emotional and physiological feelings that one has but the the 10 which is subsensate is what I think is what Jim is referring to and the others are referring yeah. to as the classic microdose. And um, I've also experimented with the microdosing with, uh, with the mushrooms. And I find the mushrooms to be far less effective. Oh. I, I, I wonder how much of it is the you know, placebo effect. And even if it is, so what? You know, I mean, if it works, right. it works. That's right. right. That's right. But I, I contacted Ayelet recently and asked her if she was still microdosing, and she said she wasn't, but we didn't go into any depth about it. Yeah. I, I'd be interested to know how she's dealing with her bipolar because, you know, the, what was so exciting about the book was that she got relief from her bipolar condition from the microdose where she hasn't gotten relief from everything else that the pharmacies had to offer for 20 yeah. years. And that's interesting because they say if you're bipolar, you should really be careful with with with, with full dose psychedelics, right? Um, well, people with with serious diagnoses across the board need to be very careful, if not avoidant, unless they have, you know, a, 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 a doctoral level person who's going to take responsibility. And that's one of those caveats that you and I were talking about earlier. Right. Yeah, certainly. People with all OCD, schizophrenia, those people have to be extremely careful because yeah. because we just don't have the research yet to know what to expect. And you certainly don't want to be experimenting on a patient. Yeah. You know, one well, it seems of like depression and PTSD and substance abuse are the three areas that are most promising with the and anxiety. Stuff. I think to a certain extent. Yeah, anxiety, so. Yeah. so Let's make believe the interview is over, but it's not. Okay. <laughs> and, 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 and you walk into the other room and sit down and have a cup of whatever, tea or coffee or something, and you're reflecting. And into your mind pops, gee, you know, while I was with Richard, I wish I would have added this. So right now I'm going to ask you to take a pause and tell me before we do conclude is there anything that you might think of as you're pausing that you want our listeners to hear before we go? I might have to actually walk out, get my coffee, and then come back for that to work. But let me think. You, you can do that if you like. I'm good with that. <laughs> well, I, 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 we, we did talk about my, my, my concerns about the, the hope and the hype around this. You know, the hope is great. The hype is a little too much. Yes. Uh, psychedelics are not going to save the world. They didn't save it in the 60s. They're not going to save it in the 20s. You know, they're very promising tools. But I think people have to like, uh, you know, this just the what, what really I'm actually kind of tired of the whole subject, to tell you the truth, Richard, uh, the commodification of this, the, you know, the medicalization, you know, uh, we really have to find a way that ordinary people can can do this in a safe that's right way and that's the real trick you know there's this kind of elitist you know underground therapy scene that's i'm sure you know has been going of on of course years. i know i'm very concerned about the fact yeah. this, and, and so this that, that, you know and the other thing so i've been uh, recently i've been writing uh, a series of articles for this website lucid uh, news about uh, psychedelics and religion like it's called god on psychedelics where i've been going to various churches that are forming or or coming above ground now, and that's a whole other way of of using these uh, th these medicines uh, in a way that can possibly be more uh, affordable, less mm -hmm. medical, less commodification. So I, I think that's an interesting area to watch: are how this is going to affect not just psychedelic churches that are forming, whether they're from the ayahuasca churches yes. like Santa Daime or uh, UDV, but also homegrown kind of things popping up. I, I just wrote one about a church in Oakland called Sacred Garden Community, which I joined to, to more, 
mostly as a journalist, but also I was interested. Let so me interrupt you for one. Really interesting area to watch is not, nope. there's been a lot of attention on the clinical trials and the medicalization, but, and also how can this help mainstream religion revive itself? There's some really interesting work going on there with religious professionals taking, you know, psilocybin. I've written about mm -hmm. that quite a bit too. So that, well, that, to me, that's, that's the more interesting part of the story right now. I'm going to have to end now, Don, but you're talking about some other avenues that I think, if you're willing, we'll do in a second interview, uh, mm -hmm. which would, I think, be real interesting. And these spiritual groups you're talking about and the, and, and the effect on religion, and I'd like to discuss with you the potential effects on politics and government. But for now, I just want to thank you for being with us here today. It's thank been, you, Richard. It was, it was great talking to you. It was great talking to you, and thank you to our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. Please go to our website, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Subscribe to our program. You know how to do that. Get involved with our community. You know how to do that. And my book, my latest book is out, Psychedelic Wisdom. It came out this week. I hope you'll take a look at it. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is really worth fighting for. And it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.